0: If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 18. We'll read verses 22 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 33. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Thus far the reading of God's word. That's a remarkable scene. You turn in the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll read verses 8 through 11 as we draw near to the end of the first epistle of Peter. We read last week about the call to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, Peter pointing his church's attention to. The truth, wonderful and terrible, that in all of their affliction it is but the hand of their heavenly Father. And the great consolation for them was that the same hand that humbles also upholds according to his purposes. And here we get another angle on the same dynamic. What's going on in our afflictions? And So Peter writes, starting in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. May he lend his blessing to it. Join me in prayer. Our great God, infinite in wisdom and truth, you have spoken by the prophets of old and in these last days in the beloved Son. The great shepherd of the sheep who lays down his life for the flock, who knows his own, who speaks his voice tenderly to the hearts of those for whom he has given his life to lead and to guide in seasons of quiet, And in seasons of tumult, the promise remains. He will never leave us nor forsake us. How wonderful. As we consider such things, as we heed the instruction of your word concerning this mysterious figure who would seek our downfall, our destruction, namely the devil, posture us in humility, Teach us, instruct us, make us wise, attune us to his craft and cunning. Equip us in the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection that we might be made to stand. And that all glory might resound to your name, our God, our Savior, our Maker, our Redeemer. We ask this in Christ. Amen. I've mentioned before that I've watched more hours of lion hunting video than I care to admit. I'm not proud of this, it was in the name of research as my dissertation had to do with animals and lions in particular. It's proved itself useful for this introduction, for I can report with some confidence that in all the videos of lion hunting that I have watched, the lion Almost always wins. Here or there, a zebra may escape, or an antelope might dart away, or a herd of elephant band together to fend off an attack. But overall, the lion is a fierce hunter, and he usually gets his prey. And these few escapes, notwithstanding to the swift or the stout, There is one video I have never encountered, sheep bests lion, or even sheep escapes lion or sheep outwits lion, and certainly never sheep destroys lion. However you want to put it, Google that video with all your might, your Google will be in vain. Now, when we think of a lion, we might think, oh, you mean like Mufasa? Or like the lions I saw in the zoo. Or maybe even Aslan, which I understand, but I would not have chosen myself that image as a fitting figure for our Lord. Partly because for the ancient world, more than anything else, when they heard lion, they thought unstoppable, destructive power. So when Peter brings this letter to a close, and he writes... Little flock, little sheep, your enemy prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Our immediate impulse is not to be, bring it on. We find in this combination of images, lion and sheep, a posture of desperation. The nature of our enemy with his cruelty, ferocity, relentlessness, and seemingly unstoppable power set over and against our frail nature as sheep, prone to wander, prone to absurdity, prone to be devoured. (laughs) Well, there's only one appropriate response Where's the shepherd? We need a shepherd. The shepherd must be near or we will perish because no sheep has ever bested any lion. Except for one. Everyone knows that the only hope that the sheep has of sur- surviving the roaring and the prowling lion is not to be found in the sheep, it's to be found in the shepherd. The good shepherd who gathers the sheep, who binds the sheep, who heals the sheep, and who preserves the sheep. For he has purchased us at the cost of his blood. Peter gives us one final angle on our afflictions here. He says, in, with, and under all of your afflictions, there is a true and proper enemy who earnestly yearns the destruction of your souls. He is as loathsome as he is fierce. Make no mistake, on earth is not his equal. And did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing." And it is because of the ferocity of our enemy that we are instructed to flee in sober faith to the shepherd who is greater, who is stronger, who is mightier, as the one whom God set forth for the gathering and the preservation of a little helpless flock. So we consider this morning three things first, our enemy. Second, our call. And third, our shepherd God. First, our enemy. Peter writes, Be sober, be vigilant. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. When it comes to Satan and the devils, we're immediately confronted with two temptations. The one is to scoff and disbelieve. The other is to desire to know more about such things than Scripture says is appropriate. The world rolls its eyes at the person of Satan, and in so doing, Satan has his way. At the same time, many in the church and outside of the church have an unhealthy obsession about these things, there's an allure to a mysterious darkness that causes us to want to know more than Scripture sets forth as appropriate. There's great refreshment to know that Scripture supplies us with exactly what we need, saying no more or no less than what is necessary for us to withstand and to posture ourselves rightly before the enemy and before our God. We sing Psalm 131, not haughty is my heart, I do not seek to know the things that God's wisdom has denied. So what does Peter tell us? He gives us two titles here which are very similar. The one is he is our adversary or accuser, and the second is he is the devil or Satan. Now first, why is he our enemy? Why is this one arrayed in a deranged hostility against the people of God? Now, it's true that in one sense, he is the enemy of all mankind, the enemy of human beings. Paul tells us this, right? When the gospel goes forth, what does the God of this world do? He blinds minds. He blinds the minds of unbelievers from seeing the light of the glory of God on display in what? the gospel, the truth about who God is, about what he's done, about how he has freely provided everything necessary, not just for creatures, but for sinners to come unto himself. The enemy of mankind blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot hear such a plain testimony of the inexhaustible goodness of this God, such that he reconciles enemies unto himself jesus uses the same image doesn't he in the parable of the seed what happens to the seed that's sowed on the road the wicked one comes and he plucks it immediately from the hearts of those who hear it and so in one sense this enemy is the enemy of all mankind because he is the enemy of god He has set himself up from the very beginning as anti-God, as against God, as darkness against light, as a murderer against the one who is life, as a liar against the one who is truth, as sin against the one who is holiness, righteousness. He has set himself up against God and thus in a unique sense, he opposes God's people, In a unique sense, he seeks to devour God's children. This is what we learn in the mysterious but wonderful testimony of the book of Revelation. The great dragon is thrown down, and what does he do? Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. The dragon seeking to devour Christ is thwarted there as Christ conquers and ascends. And so when the dragon is thrown down in a great rage because he knows his time is running short, he does not simply submit. He has never submitted. He has never bowed to God's just judgment. He's never bowed to God's infinite wisdom. What does he do? He seeks to work as much woe as he possibly can in the interim. And he is very, very good at it. Isn't that what's plain in the image of the lion? That's how he's described here, a lion prowling around, roaring, seeking someone to devour. Usually when the power of our enemy is set on display, it is the figure of a lion that comes to a fore. But there's also craft in a lion, I'm not sure if you've watched those same videos that I've watched, but the stealth of a lion in hunting is remarkable. They can remain still for hours, seemingly waiting for their prey to drop their guard for a moment, and then they pounce. Power crouched in cunning and craft. Craft and power is usually set on display through the figure of what? The serpent, and in the combination of two... Of the two, the power of the lion and the craft of the serpent, what do you get? In addition to profanity and unholiness and a mystery of monstrosity that tells us that this thing is not of this world. A dragon. That's what you get. The figure of a dragon who is seeking to destroy the people of God. That's his aim. To devour. The lion. Devours the flock. That's what he does, and it is a terrible thought. How does he do it? Well, we know through power sometimes. What did he do to Job to try to ruin his soul? Destruction. Remarkable displays of power, wasn't it? Sure, the Lord had granted him the right to do it, but it seems like he's got a fair amount of power to afflict to operate things, to bring bodily woe or craft. If it's not going to be power to work destruction, it's going to be cunning to provide pleasure, sin. That which the world can give. What did he offer our Lord and Savior in his temptation? All the riches of all the kingdoms of the world. Power in persecution craft in pleasure towards one aim, separate from God. Isolate and separate. Peter hints at his aim and his method here, doesn't he? He says, resist the devil, knowing that the same suffering has come upon your brotherhood throughout all the world. He's cluing us into the enemy's tactics, one of which is you're alone. You're alone. You're forsaken. The afflictions that you experience indicate that you have been cast off from God. You're alone. And what happens when you're alone? What happens when there is a lone sheep? Vulnerability and devouring. It's a terrifying prospect. It's meant to be terrifying. It's meant to be humbling, just as these images that are given to us throughout 1 Peter about our true reality that we were formerly depraved in our mind, exercising in the futile ways that were handed from our forefathers, formerly groping about in darkness, those are humbling images of our flesh, of who we are. He calls us little children, young ones. That's a humbling image. And here he says, little sheep before a lion. That's a humbling image. For it presses upon our heart, our helplessness. But it also highlights the magnitude of loveliness that's on display in the shepherd. If the lion sees vulnerability, And weakness as an opportunity to destroy and devour. Consider the heart of the shepherd when he sees our vulnerability, our weakness, our wandering. It is not destroy and devour. It's retrieve, bind up, heal, keep near. And this to the praise of his glorious grace. And so it is in the face of this humbling reality that we are but sheep before a devouring lion and the wonder of the shepherd as the one who keeps from the devouring lion that the call comes forth. Resist him. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. It's a powerful image, isn't it? Resistance. Join the resistance. My friend got a text message from one of our dear friends uh, who lives in Ukraine and the village that we lived in a long time ago now uh, is currently being occupied uh, by Russian forces and he texted my friend and says, uh, the enemy is here, but we are holding on. We trust help will come soon. I don't care what you make of the situation. It's a powerful image and it's one that gets at the reality that we find ourselves in. We are holding on. We are in enemy territory. This call to resist marries nicely, goes hand in hand with this larger image of the church as exiles. (laughs) The church as... The people of God in a strange and a dangerous land. Something that the historical people of God experienced acutely. Chiefly where? Courts of Babylon? What was the call that rested upon Daniel and his faithful friends? It wasn't overthrow Babylon. (laughs) It wasn't transform Babylon into Jerusalem. It was resist Their programmatic regime that would have you forget that you belong to the living and true God. And their threats? The same. Pleasure and persecution. All the riches of the courts offered to them. The vast halls of learning that would have been on display. There was an international library that Ashurbanipal had assembled in Assyria. Certainly, Nebuchadnezzar's courts would have whiffed of the same riches. It's all yours. Just forget who you are as the people of the true and living God. And if you won't go the way of pleasure to forget, I'll put you in a furnace, I'll put you in a lion's den. They didn't know that we have the one who stays the mouth of lions as our shepherd. And so the call to resist took the form in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do what you want to me. Maybe my God delivers. Maybe my God doesn't deliver. But he is the true and living God. You have no power over me that he has not given you. Come what may. And that's the heart of sobriety here that Peter exhorts us to. Be sober, be alert. Well, what is sober? What's the opposite of being drunk? (laughs) What is be alert? Well, it's the opposite of being dazed, drowsy. Be sober, be alert. Perceive things rightly, see things rightly. But we're speaking figuratively there, right? Because we don't see by sight. We see by faith. We see that the things that are on display around us don't tell the whole story. We see that the furnace that seemingly was going to devour the servants wasn't the whole story. For there was a fourth that walked with them, such that the intensity of flames that Nebuchadnezzar himself couldn't control as it devoured his own servants, who put them in the furnace, did nothing to even singe the garments of the three boys as they entrusted themselves to the one who judges justly, either in this life or the next. The sobriety to which Peter exhorts us here to of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Why would I shrink back from my Lord in the face of death when he has conquered death? When he has sanctified the grave? Such that every pleasure you offer me pales in comparison to the pleasures that are at his right hand, which he gives me freely, you foul serpent who would have me believe that my God is stingy, miserly, withholding me from something wonderful. Foul fiend, away, he gives freely. Generously, abundantly, he will withhold no good thing from me, even if it's through flame, flood. That's sober. It's sober to forfeit the world and gain your soul. It's sober to take up your cross, following after a man who defeated death, the only one this world has ever seen. That's sober. But it also requires faith, doesn't it? It says, resist him, firm in your faith. Faith, taking hold of that object, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Father has set forth to gather and keep the flock. For in him, the Father has been pleased to pour out every blessing. And so you can see how this call unto resistance, this call unto sobriety and alertness, and this call unto faith postures us rightly in the face of this foe against whom none of us can stand, who indeed would have his way with every single one of us, just as he would have sifted Peter like wheat without the intercession of the one who prayed for him, such that though it was through tumult, Peter was strengthened. Peter was established and he here turns to strengthen his brother's Postured rightly towards the enemy, despairing of our own strength and ability, perceiving in all of the afflictions and all of the offerings of this world the enemy's occasion to separate us and lead us astray from the one who possesses all riches, who gives them freely, who possesses pardon and peace and joy forevermore and gives them freely. Who leads us through the flood, through the fire, into places of abundance. It postures us towards Him. And that's how Peter closes. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Consider how those attributes, those titles, those ascriptions speak directly to the heart of the one who is being afflicted, particularly of the church who's being battered about by a regime that is hostile to the church. In those moments of affliction, we're tempted to think, what? God has turned his back on us. God has forsaken us. He has forgotten us, clearly He cares nothing for us. And Peter says, no, 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 he is the God of all grace. Or better, he is the God of every grace. He's making the same point that James makes in James chapter 1 where the disorienting effects of temptation where we're tempted to go astray because our flesh sees something and is subsidized by a mystery that would lead us astray. He says, don't get it wrong about God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights who has brought you forth according to his own will. What's he saying? He's saying he begrudges you nothing, he keeps from you nothing. Abundance, Freely bestowed characterizes him. The one who, according to the riches of his mercy, caused you to be born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You foreknown in eternity past. What is he going to keep from you? This is his initiative His love upon you was his doing, his purpose, his will. What's he going to keep? He's the God of all grace. Jesus Christ coming full of grace and truth. From him we have received from his fullness grace upon grace. Do you doubt his goodness to you? Do you doubt his benevolent heart to you? Do you wonder if he is a good heavenly father? All of our iterations of fathers are tinged with good and bad alike, myself included. But I would withhold no good thing from my daughter, and that imperfectly. Oh, how much more the perfect heavenly Father, who looks upon his children with compassion and tenderness and sets forth the Lord Jesus Christ as the proof that no good thing will he withhold from us. And that is evident in the very next ascription. He has called us unto his eternal glory in Christ. Nobody's passed out, so I take it that the weight of that phrase hasn't landed. He's called us to his glory. Eternal glory. Think about the glory that we labor for. Peter's already talked about it. There is a glory that man has in his accomplishments. Look at those high towers. That's remarkable. The people who did that are remarkable. Look at those bridges. That's remarkable. The people who did that are remarkable. Look at Anna Karenina. That's remarkable. The one who did that is remarkable. It's remarkable like grass and flowers, are remarkable. But more plain than those works of our hands are the thorns and the thistles which we bring forth. That's the work of our hands. What's the work of our hands? What's the glory of man? Where's the proof that he is laboring? It's the crown of thorns that we placed atop the Lord of glory. That's our doing. That's man's glory, crucifying the Lord of light. And what has our God done through it? Flipped our attempts on their head to snuff out the light in order to bring us to his eternal glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. As the cross has laid our hearts bare, saying, this is your sin, This is what it looks like. This is its terrible aspect. And yet this is my love displayed. The provision of forgiveness. Such that even there the dragon sought to devour the offspring of the woman. And even his attempt to devour him. Nailing him upon a cursed tree did nothing but accomplish the purposes of God and redemption laying him low so that the one who judges justly could exalt him at the proper time. We have been called unto eternal glory. The Father willingly giving as the God of all grace. The Father giving the choicest gifts as the one who called us unto his eternal glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we might think, well, that's well and good. He's willing, but is he able? That's how Peter ends. To him be the... Power, might forever and ever. A power and a might that makes this lion look like a cat. A power and a might which is not only incomprehensible to conceive of, but also pure, holy, in that it is not an expression of malice and deceit which is the very nature of our enemy's power. It is love and truth. It is grace and truth. Such that John, in that wonderful book of the apocalypse, he hears tell of another lion. Do you remember this episode? I told you that I had never seen the video that showcases a lamb destroying a lion and that's true i've never seen that video but i've heard of such a thing john hears of the lion of the tribe of judah who has conquered if you're going to read the book of revelation you have to mark the difference between hearing and seeing he hears of the lion of the tribe of judah who has conquered and he turns and what does he see A lamb standing as though slain. Power. The power, the likes of which our enemy knows nothing about. A power that stood in the stead of sinners to bring sinners to his eternal glory. This is a God, the likes of which we do not comprehend. But he is ours, for it pleased him to take us as his own, purchased by the blood of Christ. If he is for us, who can be against us? What shall we fear? Join me in prayer. Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are vulnerable. The deceit, the cunning, The craft and the power of our enemy is terrible to consider. Our only refuge, our only strength, our only consolation is that the right man is on our side. The Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who gives his life in the stead of the sheep whose gospel now goes forth and is plundering the camp, the house of the strong man such that light is dawning as this gospel of grace goes forth. A God of wonder who provides sinners everything necessary for eternal felicity, for the enjoyment of your glory forevermore. Orient our hearts aright, O Lord. Teach us to seek the things that are above. Teach us to stand against the schemes of the enemy and the strength of the might of our Lord. We ask in his name, amen.